Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, the Center's Vice President for Scholarly Programs. It's my pleasure to introduce this special series of Discovery and Inspiration episodes. Each year, the National Humanities Center welcomes up to 40 scholars from across the United States and abroad who spend their time working on scholarly projects to enhance our understanding of the human experience. Our usual Discovery and Inspiration podcasts are recorded during their year at the Center as they are immersed in the research and writing process. These special episodes of the Discovery and Inspiration podcasts, however, feature National Humanities Center fellows discussing their completed projects, which have now been published. These conversations were part of the Center's virtual book talk series in 2020, 21, and 2022, which were recorded originally on YouTube with a live online audience. I hope you will enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of our amazing scholars as they share insights into what their research reveals about the world we share. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this evening's virtual book club. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the National Humanities Center, and your host for this evening's event. Tonight's conversation is the first in our three-part series this fall on American democracy, where we'll talk with scholars about the ongoing struggle to realize our founders' vision of a country ruled by its citizens and dedicated to the proposition that all are created equal. Our guest this evening is Professor Kathleen Duvall, Bowman and Gordon Gray Professor in the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she has taught since 2003. Her first book, The Native Ground, Indians and Colonists in the Heart of the Continent, examined the relationship between indigenous peoples and European settlers in the American interior complicating our understanding by considering the story from the, the perspectives of the native tribes. Kathleen followed that award-winning effort with interpreting a continent, Voices from Colonial America, a volume she co-edited with her father, the literary translator John Duvall. Interpreting a Continent is a remarkable collection of key documents that incorporates voices other than merely those of the English colonists with whom we're all familiar. Colonists from Spain, France, Russia, Germany, even Iceland, as well as Native Americans and Africans. Kathleen Duvall has held fellowships from the American Philosophical Society, the Huntington Library, and the Newberry Library. And with the help of a Guggenheim Fellowship, she's currently writing a book on native dominance of North America from the 11th to the 19th centuries. This evening, though, she's graciously agreed to talk with us about her most recent award-winning book, Independence Lost, Lives on the Edge of the American Revolution, which she worked on as a fellow at the National Humanities Center in 2008-2009. Please join me in welcoming Professor Kathleen Duvall. Kathleen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Robert. I also want to say a big thank you to Heidi Camp and Joel Elliott and all the other wonderful staff of the National Humanities Center. Um, I'm delighted to be pulling the 18th century into this discussion of the timely topic of democracy. 
Um, I'll be talking mostly about my book, as Robert mentioned, uh, Independence Lost Lives on the Edge of the American, uh, American Revolution, right? And, um, but in the question and answer, if people want to talk more generally, I have more general questions about um, the sort of founding period, um, I'm happy to take those too. I'm a former fellow of the National Humanities Center, as Robert mentioned, where I spent a very happy year finishing up the research and starting the writing for this book. Now, I decided to write about the American Revolution because, as Robert said, I, my first two books were mostly in the American colonial period, the period before the revolution. And um, I was writing those at a time when the scope of early American, colonial American history was broadening. So traditionally, early American history, or pre-US history, as we don't like it to be called, uh, was centered in basically in Virginia and Massachusetts. Um, gradually, over a couple of generations, historians of the colonial period broadened that focus out to include more English colonies than just those, to include French and Spanish and Dutch colonies as well to include native nations that still held most of the power on the continent of North America through uh, until the revolutionary period um, and people of African descent um, and men and women in all of those groups. Um, what I found was when I taught my students, I would teach them this broad view of colonial North America. And then when we got to 17, 60 or so, I would zoom in on the 13 English colonies that rebelled, even though I knew the story was bigger than that. Um, so I wanted to apply some of those themes of multiple voices um, and also of contingency, of the lack of inevitability. Some of those themes we've been working on in colonial America, I wanted to bring them to the story of the American Revolution and tell the stories of loyalists and enslaved people and native nations um, and France and Spain and their colonists in North America. Um, and so I decided to set this book on the Gulf Coast, um, which is not where most books about the American Revolution take place, but it is where there were some battles of the American Revolution that even most Americans don't know about. So um, let me set the stage. What I'm gonna do some of the time is read from the book and, and other parts of the time I will, I will just speak. So. We're gonna start in Pensacola in 1774. And I'm gonna show you a map just to give you some, um, some grounding. So if you can see this map, this sets us at the eve of the American Revolution. Now you may remember seeing maps of the Louisiana Purchase where Louisiana is of course much bigger than the state of Louisiana at the time that Napoleon sells it to Jefferson. But here, uh, before the American Revolution, the French colony of Louisiana was actually even bigger than that. Until the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, Louisiana, the French colony of Louisiana spanned both sides of the Mississippi River. So that's the Mississippi River, the big river in the middle. That yellow part on the west and the pink part on the east, both were part of French Louisiana. France lost the Seven Years' War. And so in 1763, that pink half, the eastern half went to Britain who won the Seven Years' War. Um, so on the eve of the revolution, there are the 13 colonies that you're familiar with, but there are two more colonies there just below Georgia. East Florida is basically the Florida Peninsula today. And then what the British called West Florida is those, um, well, what's basically now Mississippi, Alabama, and the panhandle of Florida. 
On the west side of the Mississippi River was Spanish Louisiana, so smaller than French Louisiana had been, but still very large. At the end of the Seven Years' War, Spain got that part of Louisiana from France, including, importantly, New Orleans at the mouth of the Mississippi River. And then if you look farther to the west, that's uh, even more Spanish territory, it continues on from there. Now, most Americans today don't know about this part of the American Revolution because those battles there were fought between the British crown and not rebels, um, but instead Spain. Let me set the stage here for us. This is Pensacola, 1774. In 1774, West Florida Governor Peter Chester opened a letter from men in Philadelphia calling themselves a General Congress of Deputies from the colonies of New Hampshire, Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, the lower counties on the Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. The letter asserted that so rapidly violent and unjust has been the late conduct of the British administration against the colonies that each colony must either resign itself to losing its ancient, just, and constitutional liberty or join the opposition. These men, the men who wrote this letter, hoped West Florida and the other British colonies in North America would join them. There were not just 13 British American colonies in 1774. From Nova Scotia to Jamaica, the actual count was at least twice that. People all across the British colonies would have to decide how to respond to this protest and later to the war and the independence movement it would become. Local people would decide whether or not to rebel. And then they and their adversaries would try to recruit others. Allegiances were complicated, seldom tied to simple, simple national or imperial loyalties. Familial or community ties often trumped more abstract identities. And allegiances could shift depending on who promised what and who seemed likely to win. As the Spanish and French kings watched this rebellion from Europe, they hoped that it would prove disastrous for their British rival and that it would reverse British gains from victory in the Seven Years' War just a few years earlier. For now, though, most people on the Gulf Coast remained focused on local matters. Governor Chester shoved the letter into his pocket and did not tell anyone about it. West Florida will end up not joining the rebellion that these 12 and eventually 13 colonies create. Um, Spain then will come into the war against Britain, but for its own motives, not in any way fighting for American independence, but fighting for its own empire to try to expand its empire at the expense of Britain. Thousands of Spanish soldiers and sailors came to these battles um, in what's now part of the United States. Um, and I became most interested really in the diverse people who lived there before the Revolutionary War, through the war, and, and then what happened to them afterwards. Europeans, Native Americans, and Africans. Within a few, de uh, within a few decades, the Gulf Coast, the whole Gulf South would become part of the United States, um, but people there would never have guessed that was its future before or during the Revolutionary War. My book follows eight main characters. So what I'd like to do is to introduce you to a few of them. The first one I wanna talk about is a man named Amon Broussard. Broussard was an Acadian. He was born in French Canada and he um, was one of the thousands of Acadians who were expelled by the British during the course of the Seven Years' War. Amon Broussard and his family took refuge in New Orleans, escaping from the British. And 
We're going to start with him when he does not yet know that Spain has declared war against Britain. The sun had not yet risen as Amon Broussard gathered with the other men of his camp just south of the Iberville River in Spanish Louisiana. The 10-foot-wide trunks and knobby knees of cypress trees rose out of the early morning mist. Although the air was muggy on that, on that morning of September 7, 1779, the temperature was bearable. As he stood surrounded by his brothers and cousins, Broussard caught sight of Louisiana's governor, Brigadier General Bernardo de Galvez, on his horse above the crowd. It was a big crowd, more than 1,300 armed men. The over 600 militiamen included French-speaking Louisianans, both Acadians like Broussard and those who had settled in earlier decades when Louisiana was French. Some of the militiamen were British refugees who had left West Florida after raids on the lower Mississippi had revealed Britain's inability to protect them. At least 80 members of the New Orleans Free Black Militia were there, serving in segregated units led by their own officers. There were about 500 regular Spanish troops, plus 20 light cavalry. They were joined by 160 homeless, six towns, Choctaws, Alabamas, and other Indians of the lower Mississippi. Seven Americans, including Oliver Pollock, marched under an American battle flag. Governor Galvez had spent the previous weeks assembling them all with the news that Spain had recognized the United States as an independent country, and that Britain might retaliate against, against Spanish Louisiana. Still, it seemed a strangely large gathering to just make a defensive tour of Southern Louisiana. Once Galvez began to speak to the troops, Broussard listened to a French translation of Galvez's Spanish as other interpreters hurried to keep up in English, Homa, Alabama, and Choctaw. The news was startling. Spanish King Carlos III had declared war on Britain and he expected the people of Louisiana to do their part. A roar of appreciation broke out, loudest among the Broussards and the other Acadians. They could remember the horrors that the British had put them through, imprisoning them and driving them from Acadia into exile in Louisiana, where they had built new lives with the permission of French and Spanish governors. Galvez managed to persuade Louisiana's Frenchmen and women, slaves, free blacks, and British refugees that their hopes for independence and prosperity lay in Spanish rule not in British. Like the Minutemen of Massachusetts, 1,500 miles to the Northeast, they fought not for abstract principles, but to protect their local political and economic independence, which they now saw as threatened by the British. Neither the Spanish nor the British could count on their colonial subjects' loyalty when asked to risk their lives and commit their scarce resources. Now that war between Spain and Britain had brought fighting to the Gulf Coast, each side would have to work to recruit allies, to persuade its imperial hierarchy to devote military resources to this new front, and to convince its own colonists that their interests lay in an empire that protected and provided for them. Which side would persuade the peoples of the lower Mississippi and the Gulf Coast that it could best protect both their local independence and the prosperity brought by global economic connections? Whoever could do that would stand a good chance of winning the war on the Gulf Coast. Among the people who needed to be persuaded by either the British or the Spanish to fight on one side or the other in this part of the war um, were the many, many Native Amer many thousands of Native Americans who lived in between and in the interior north of, of Florida and Louisiana. Um, so one of my other characters in the book is a man named Alexander McGillivray. So 
his name is Alexander McGillivray. You can, you can tell it sounds Scottish. His father was Scottish, but his mother was Creek and the Creeks are matrilineal. And so by having a Creek mother, Alexander McGillivray, despite his name was fully Creek. Um, he grew up in the town of Little Tallassee in Upper Creek country. You can see it there on the map. He spent part of his youth uh, being educated by his father, who was a merchant in Charleston and Savannah. But his father was a loyalist. And so when the revolution broke out, Alexander and his sister got on a horse and rode home, rode home to their mother's country. And so I'm going to read here from Alexander McGillivray has returned home and he's starting to try to reintegrate himself now as an adult into Creek life, Creek Indian life, Muscogee life. As drums called the council to session in the spring of 1777, Alexander McGillivray walked through Little Tallassee's public square and entered one of the council cabins. <clears throat> Wearing the standard Creek garb of a bright red turban, a white English made linen shirt, blue leggings and deerskin boots, he found a seat amid the growing crowd. Two older men in ceremonial dress entered slowly, singing softly and carrying conch shells and gourds. The vessels were filled with black drink, a noxious liquid made by steeping a holly plant in water. Likely to induce nausea and perhaps vomiting, black drink symbolized renewal and ensured that council participants had their heads cleared from alcohol or heavy meals. When McGillivray's turn to drink came, the lukewarm liquid was bitter on his tongue but it would not do to show disgust. As the speeches began, he occasionally took a puff from a shared pipe and worked to follow what the men were saying. There was a lot to talk about in Creek councils in 1777. Indians between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River hoped that British soldiers would put the rebellious colonists back in their place, literally. The rebels should return to being loyal British subjects and obey their empire's proclamation of 1763 which had ordered them to stick to the coast and out of Indian country. Yet hoping for the British Empire's success and sending one's people to fight and die for it were quite different matters. As Alexander McGillivray was learning, Creeks did not necessarily agree that fighting for the British was their best path. McGillivray would find himself deep in debates over these questions as war spread far from Boston. The Spanish, come out of New Orleans, the Spanish force comes out of New Orleans, they win battles on the, Mississippi, on the lower Mississippi at Baton Rouge and at Mobile, at the port of Mobile. And there, Spanish officials met a man named Petit Jean, who's another of the central figures in my book. Petit Jean was an enslaved man. He was enslaved by a family in Mobile. He was a cattle driver which meant that he spent most of his days on the outskirts of Mobile tending the cattle and only brought cattle into Mobile when his owner had him do that to bring them in for, um, for slaughter. So let's go with Petit Jean here as the Spanish forces are taking Mobile in 1780. Celebrating as a foreign army marches into your town is not necessarily a sign of anything but quick wits. Still, the cheers of Petit Jean and other enslaved Mobilians may have been sincere. The Spanish had a reputation for granting more rights to slaves and free blacks and more opportunities for slaves to gain freedom than the British. When Mobile was under siege, Petit Jean may have fled into Fort Charlotte with his wife and other Mobilians to wait out the siege to the sound of cannon fire. 
Or if he was out with his cattle, he probably stayed clear of the fort and the British force until the siege was over. In either case, he could have seen that the Spanish soldiers marching into Mobile included at least 400 armed men of African descent. The New Orleans Free Black Militia wore striking black jackets with gold buttons and round hats topped with crimson. Free men of mixed ancestry formed a different company with green jackets, with eye-catching white buttons and lapels. At least 50 enslaved and free blacks, possibly including Petit Jean himself, had defended Mobile for the British, but there were fewer of them. They were not a permanent force and they did not have uniforms. The British had been more reluctant to arm enslaved people than the Spanish. If not freedom in absolute terms, would Spanish rule convey more liberty, economic independence, and outward signs of respect for enslaved peoples relative to British rule? Petit Jean took the chance and became a courier and spy for Spain. It's not clear if he offered his services to a Spanish officer or if a Spaniard learned of his knowledge of Mobile's surroundings after the siege and requested him from his master. In any case, Petit Jean knew that his skills and knowledge of the region and its peoples including the land and water between Mobile and Pensacola, the next target of the Spanish, would be valuable to the Spanish and might benefit him as well. So if we go back to Pensacola, to seven years after Governor Chester received that letter that he stuck in his pocket and ignored, um, let's focus on two more, the final two I'll introduce of, of the characters I follow, a married couple named Isabella and James Bruce. Now, they are West Florinians and they are resolutely against the rebellion. They're on the side of their crown, the British crown, because they feel that the empire has provided them with what they need for their own family. Uh, it's given them land, which is why they left Scotland in the first place. I'm gonna introduce you to them from part of the introduction. So it will also bring in the theme of independence that brings some of these stories together. As the sky lightened in the early morning hours of March 9th, 1781, British sailors on a frigate floating at the mouth of Pensacola Bay spotted a fleet heading straight for them. One sailor scrambled high on the mast, straining to see the flag flying over the lead ship. Hoping to see the red, white, and blue of the Union Jack, instead the lookout recognized the bold red and gold stripes of Spanish King Carlos III's naval flag. The British frigate fired seven shots, whose thunderous sound warned the people of Pensacola of imminent invasion. These sailors were not surprised at the Spanish invasion. Pensacola was the capital of British West Florida and the last line of defense against Spanish conquest of the entire colony. The sailors had only hoped that the Spanish would not arrive before reinforcements. By invading West Florida, Spain was taking advantage of the distraction of the rebellion to expand eastward along the Gulf of Mexico. For Britain, now on the defensive on two fronts, the prospect of Spanish expansion raised the stakes of the war. When James Bruce, a member of His Majesty's Council for West Florida, and his wife, Isabella, heard the cannon fire and saw the smoke rising from the extinguished fire of the lighthouse to signal the arrival of the Spanish ships, they gathered their children, some provisions, and a few belongings. Along with Pensacola's other government officials and several hundred European, African, and Native women and children, the Bruces rushed into the town's main fort. Natives of Scotland, their fortunes lay with the British Empire. If the Spanish or the rebels prevailed, they were likely to capture the Bruces and their children and send them into exile or worse. Every July 4th, Americans celebrate the independence the revolution created, the political separation from Britain and the creation of the United States of America. 
On such occasions, Americans might imagine that independence was a universal and, uniform, and a uniform goal in the 18th century. But as the story of James and Isabella Bruce would remind us, the Revolutionary War was not fought solely for the independence of the United States. The war's conclusion did not bring freedom to all those who came, became part of the new republic. Some people fought hard against joining the new nation that Thomas Jefferson called the only monument of human rights and the sole depository of a sacred fire of freedom and self-government. Stories of competing colonial groups, strong native confederacies and nations, and overlapping systems of slavery reveal that the Anglo-American Anglo nation that arose from the revolution was not inevitable. In fact, both the defeat of the most powerful empire in the world and the creation of a lasting republic were highly unlikely outcomes. Scholarship and popular memory have long portrayed late 18th century Spaniards and native people as people out of time. Spain as a crumbling empire and natives living in ways incompatible with the agrarianism to come. In this view, both were incapable of change, destined to be overrun by settlers from the United States. But in fact, they had ambitions that were reasonable at the time, and they came close to realizing their goals. Goals that if achieved would have spawned a very different nation or more likely multiple sovereignties. In the morning of March 18, 1781, Spanish General Galvez led the ships into Pensacola Bay. For two months, Spanish and French ships and troops, including Armand Broussard, besieged Pensacola while the Bruces and their children waited inside. Alexander McGillivray rode into Pensacola a few weeks into the siege with about 40 creeks, a disappointing show. Creeks simply didn't see much reason to come to defend Britain's colony against Spain. The British didn't send reinforcements. The Spanish and the French did send reinforcements. And ultimately, the British forces had to surrender Pensacola and the entire colony of West Florida on May 8, 1781. The fall of Pensacola helped to persuade Britain to end the war. Um, at this point, having lost West Florida, Britain had lost a colony that wasn't rebelling. So the stakes had gotten much higher. They'd gone from perhaps losing these 13 colonies to maybe losing many more and more valuable colonies. Immediately after Pensacola surrendered, the French and Spanish ships um, sailed to, back to the West Indies. French ships from the West Indies then were freed to go up to Yorktown and be an essential part of the American and French victory at Yorktown over the British. The Spanish forces went on to take the Bahamas from Britain and were preparing to try to take, to take over Jamaica, Britain's most valuable colony in the Americas. Britain, for those reasons and others, cut its losses and acknowledged American independence. Now, as you might expect, James and Isabella Bruce, being on the losing side of this war, were exiled. They lost everything from West, West Florida. Um, Spain was triumphant. This is a view of what to Spain North America looks like after the American Revolution. It's, it's an older map, but it's been colored at the, this point right after the revolution. That blue part, blue-green part on the Atlantic coast, that's the United States. The yellow and pink above it in Canada is Britain's. But then all of that pink from Florida to the Mississippi River is Spanish. And then of course, everything else is Spanish as well. Everything west of the Mississippi, California and Mexico to the south. This is why the Spanish think they have won the American Revolution. 
Now, Spain knew that being spread out over this much new territory um, meant that they needed strong native allies in these places. Native allies were the people who actually controlled these places. In fact, if you could see very um, a much closer view of this map than I can give you here, you'll see native nations' names are all over this map and on that first map that I showed you. Um, these are places that really are still controlled by native nations. Native nations in those places know though that they are going to need alliances with the Spanish or perhaps the British in order to hold off United States expansion. Um, so the Spanish make a series of treaties with native nations in these years right after the revolution. For example, Alexander McGill of Race Creeks uh, signed the Treaty of Pensacola with Spain in 1784. That, that treaty declared the Treaty of Paris invalid in the part where Britain said certain territories were being transferred to the United States, that it belonged to Britain, but the native nations here and Spain agreed with them that they, those places did not actually belong to Britain and therefore could not be given away by Britain. This Treaty of Pensacola was very carefully worded. Um, the King of Spain in this treaty with the Creeks promised the free nation of Creeks to secure and guarantee to them those lands which they actually hold against those who believe they have a sovereign right to them, the United States. Now, Petit Jean, who had worked for the winning side, for the Spanish side, did earn his freedom. Um, and with the help of his, of his Spanish patrons, he was able to free his wife as well. Now, in Louisiana and the Floridas, the Spanish monarchy, surprisingly, provided some freedoms that the United States would ultimately take away from some people. Tijon's story reveals some of the rights and opportunities that enslaved people had in some Spanish colonies at some times. They're more likely to have these freedoms in places like Louisiana, the Floridas that are on the edge of Spanish power, um, and also in wartime, they're more likely to. So enslaved people in the Spanish empire who felt they had been mistreated uh, beyond the sort of regular mistreatment that is slavery, right? But in, if they felt in some way that their owner had crossed that line, they had the right to appeal to the local Spanish commandant. Um, and sometimes they won and they're more likely to win in times of war. So for example, Louisiana's Spanish governor wrote to one accused master, Understand that in these circumstances, you must agree to deal gently with your slaves and pay them what is legitimately due. During the war, hundreds of enslaved men like Petit Jean and a few women uh, earned their freedom by serving as spies, messengers, and laborers for the Spanish forces. And more importantly, in the two decades after the Revolutionary War, over a thousand enslaved men and women in Spanish Louisiana and along the Gulf Coast freed themselves either by paying for themselves, by, by saving enough money for, to pay for themselves, um, or by being paid for by a family member or friend. Now, I want to be clear, Spanish slavery was still slavery, um, but the plantation system that the United States will spread into these places, this is, these are places that are going to be the cotton south, right? Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas. That system will be more oppressive and dehumanizing and will have even fewer opportunities for carving out some independence. At the end of the American Revolution, Creeks and other native nations west of the Appalachians um, will also suffer from large numbers of American settlers moving onto their lands with the spread of cotton plantations. 
Amand Broussard, though, will do very well with the coming of the United States. He ends up, by the time of his death, his family has a huge plantation. Built, uh, they build their wealth on enslaved labor. Alan Broussard himself will go on to fight under Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812. He will become wealthy and prominent as an American. Also, free women in the Spanish system, uh, the Spanish Empire, were not subject to coverture. Coverture is the system of Britain, the system that comes into place in the United States under which women's legal identities are completely subsumed. And as children, they're subsumed under their fathers. But after they marry, they're also completely subsumed under their husbands. So in the British system in the early United States, married women have no legal identities. Um, so they can't legally own property, write wills, uh, draw up contracts, exercise custody rights over their children. Uh, property that they brought to marriage or wages that they earned within marriage immediately belonged to their husband. Under the Spanish system, in contrast, women kept their legal identities in marriage. So women in Spanish colonies were able to run businesses and manage property under the law. They were not equal to men of their rank, certainly, but they had legal rights that were unavailable in the British Empire and that the new American Republic would take away. So people in North America, some people in North America lost some possibilities for freedom in the transition from monarchy, oddly enough. There were though other models besides monarchy on the continent if US founders had looked. Now 18th century Native Americans were very politically diverse, but by the 18th century, the most common Native American governance structure was with multiple leaders, um, very limited powers, mostly the power to persuade, uh, to call people together for discussion. Um, for big decisions such as war and peace in many places, uh, gatherings of, of the whole people were required. There were discussions in formal sessions and then just also elaborate meals and ceremonies where people would discuss what to do and try to come to consensus. Now, consensus-based government, this kind of government is very different from US democracy. It's participatory politics also, um, but without voting. So Native America in general, by the 18th century, emphasized balance and consensus in political decision-making over choice and confrontation. And their systems were particularly designed to try to avoid the same kind of factions, like permanent opposed factions that the founding fathers worried would arise in the United States and, and one might say did arise. Now, reaching consensus required sometimes bending toward a decision rather than insisting on one's own way. So for example, in the Iroquois Confederacy or the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, um, they said of their representatives, the thickness of their skin shall be seven spans which is to say they shall be proof against anger, offensive actions and criticism. Their hearts shall be full of peace and goodwill and their minds filled with a yearning for the welfare of the people of the Confederacy. All their words and actions shall be marked by calm deliberation. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? US reformers in the 19th and 20th century were repeatedly surprised that Native Americans didn't embrace voting-based democracy but instead insisted that they had their own ways of providing liberty and justice for their people. 
it's very easy for us like those reformers to imagine that US independence, the creation of a republic and ultimately a democracy, that that was the only path, that that is, that the democracy is, is the ultimate place all societies should be trying to get to. But I think this history reminds us that at the time of the American Revolution, while Republican government was a risky and much debated choice, and democracy was, was not even really on the table, there were other proven alternatives for running a society fairly, or at least trying to. Um, none of these political alternatives were perfect. Um, but neither, of course, is democracy. How fair democracy is depends on how it defines citizenship, who's in and who's out. Now, because it is late September in a major election year, I want to make sure that I don't end my talk by implying that democracy isn't valuable today, just because I've been talking about other ways. Uh, the series is inspired in part by the National Humanities Center's founding director, the political philosopher Charles Franken who also contextualized and criticized US democracy. Professor Frankel pointed out in his 1962 book, The Democratic Prospect, that in its narrowest sense, democracy has a fairly pedestrian definition. The method of, uh, the method of choosing a government through competitive elections in which people who are not members of the governing groups participate. What mattered in 1962, and I think he would say today, is democracy's recognition, when it's operating correctly, that people can disagree and still live in the same society. Uh, it's ideal, in fact, I think is, is closer to those native political structures than it might seem. In a democracy, ideally, Frankel wrote, both sides work to maintain the conditions necessary for a decent struggle. Democracy rests on the assumption that there are no irreconcilable conflicts. The differences can be negotiated or compromised. Such a system requires us to deal with one another honestly and to, keep, uh, to make a serious effort to reach agreements and to keep them after they have been made. Democratic competition is impossible if the parties to the competition cannot assume that their opponents will recognize their victory if they win and will cooperate with them afterwards. Now, sometimes people say US democracy, its flaw was leaving people out. And over time, it has brought more people into voting rights and, and, and gotten closer to perfection. Um, that's the Whiggish, the sort of Whiggish, sunny version of things. We, we know that the democratic process has, has, in fact, yielded terrible results at some times from Indian removal through, you can make your own list, I'm sure. But it, at its best, I think Frankel would remind us, democracy can mend wrongs and can do better. Um, it does what its people decide, right? And of course, a lot depends on who those people are and what they value. So let me just end with one last reflection on democracy. This one comes from the 1860s. Now, in the aftermath of the Civil War, uh, as the former states of the Confederacy came back in to the Union, they had to write new state constitutions. They've written state constitutions in the Confederacy and had to write new ones to come back in. Um, in Tennessee, a group of formerly enslaved people who'd been freed by the war, they knew that this state convention would be meeting to write a new state constitution for Tennessee. And they wrote a petition to the convention, urging them, the, the members of the convention, to give black men the right to vote. They wrote in this petition, we know the burdens of citizenship and are ready to bear them. This is a democracy, a government by the people. It should aim to make every man, without regard to the color of his skin, 
the amount of his wealth, or the character of his religious faith. Feel personally interested in its welfare. Every man who lives under the government should feel that it is his property, that his treasure, the bulwark and defense of himself and his family, his pearl of great price, which he must preserve, protect, and defend. Now, I know we don't often think of these days of government as our pearl of great price, um, but maybe, maybe we should. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for such a wonderful and inspiring talk and such a, such a fantastic book. Um, we have people that have tuned in from all over the country, uh, including California, Texas, uh, Utah, uh, Pennsylvania, of course, North Carolina. Um, so let me start to send some questions your way. Um, one of our listeners, viewers asks, which Native American nations lost the most in the transition from British to Spanish rule? And also the uh, same question for the later transition from Spanish to American rule. Those are good questions. Um, so I would say none of them immediately lose much in the transition from British to Spanish rule. They, um, Spain knows how weak it is up on this northern frontier. And Spain actually moves just as fast as Britain had been during the war and um, with, with actually better, like with more efficiently and with uh, brings in more um, presence and goods to seal these alliances um, with Native nations than Britain had. Britain had been signing similar treaties with Native nations, assuring them that Britain was on their side as far as land went. Um, but Spain did the same thing. So I, I don't think many of them immediately lose out. And in the short run, and maybe maybe even do a little bit better in terms of, of arms that are getting to them, because the Spanish are, are they're just they're better at bringing arms into um, in through the port of New Orleans. The second question, of course, has a very different answer, uh, which is that um, every Native nation loses out when the United States come in. There are a few exceptions, you could say, uh, well, not even, there are a few people who should be exceptions, some of the staunch allies of, um, of the United States during the revolution, such as the Catawbas in South Carolina, um, although their fighters come back from the revolution to pretty, to many of their lands haven't been taken in their absence anyway. It is a, um, it's a shameful period in American history when people who win the American Revolution have you know, set up their, this democracy, the republic and eventually democracy that is um, really in, in many ways a, a beacon, an example to the world, but that depends on this idea that land ownership is key to, to citizenship and that you can only have a virtuous, responsible citizen who will vote what is right for his society if he owns his own land and therefore can't be bullied or bribed by a landlord or a, a boss, right? Um, but the American population, the white American population is growing so rapidly at this point um, that, uh, that th that combination of things um, leads white Americans to take native lands in you know in ways that uh, you know, that native people are still um, still suffering from. You have a character um, that you didn't talk uh, too much about uh, the Chickasaw. 
uh, diplomat, uh, Paya Mataha. Yes, right. Uh, who's just, this is a fascinating story. Uh, who, this is a warrior becomes a peacemaker. Could you give us a little snapshot uh, about him and how he fits into this question? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Um, so Paya Mataha was a, yeah, he was a warrior. He was a war leader. Um, he had fought against, he, the Chickasaws had fought, he's Chickasaw, so the Chickasaws had fought against France for several, a series of wars uh, when France had Louisiana up through through the Seven Years' War. But he's mature, older leader by the time that the Seven Years' War ends. And suddenly France, the enemy he's fighting his whole military career is gone. And there's this opportunity to start fresh. And so Payamataha becomes a peace leader within the Chickasaws and leads the Chickasaws to make peace treaties with both, if you remember from that map, both the Spanish who come in in the West and the British who come in from the East. Um, he forges uh, peace treaties with both of them and then goes on to pull in Choctaws and Cherokees and Creeks and Quapaws and Osage and many, many other native nations of, of the central part, the central and central east part of the, the continent, who, some of whom had fought against each other before, and to sort of use this alliance with Spain and Britain and this growing alliance of native nations to be a, a, a peace network. It's, it's a contrast to what uh, Pontiac or Tecumseh tries to build, a sort of, you know, a, a strong military effort to fight against Britain or against the United States. And so he finds himself in a predicament at the time of the revolution, which is suddenly the Spanish and the British who he's been allied with uh, are fighting each other. And both expect the Chickasaw, both call the Chickasaws their greatest ally in the region. And, and so sort of, he's kind of exposed for having um, played them a little bit. But he manages through the course of the revolution not that, to keep the Chickasaws from having to get involved, deeply involved in the war. Um, after the war though, the United States then becomes this challenge that it's very hard to fit that policy toward. It works with the British and the Spanish even when they're at war against each other. Um, and then as the book goes on, he and Alexander McGillivray, who becomes a leader within the Creeks, they start to clash because Alexander McGillivray wants to take Spanish weapons and fight Georgia, right? Uh, he says, we have to all fight together. He wants to build a confederacy of Southern native nations, his own Creeks, Paimataz, Chickasaws, plus the Choctaws, Cherokees, um, and, and smaller tribes as well, um, to pull together and fight against the United States as hard as they can. And he ends up, he and, and, and some other Creeks end up really impinging on Chickasaw sovereignty by trying to sort of almost take them over their, the, their foreign policy and force them to fight along with them against the United States. Um, so it's sort of, in some ways a tragedy, but it's also just an example of continuing separate native nationhood in this era that continues through today. Now the Chickasaws and the Creeks don't become one people and they still aren't today. There's, there's still separate nations within the United States. And so one of the, the themes of this book and the book I'm working on now as well, are why is it that under all of these pressures uh, coming in the 19th century and 20th century, Native nations still exist not, as nations, not just as, as Native Americans within the United States. Wonderful. So another questioner asks, uh, asks you to talk a bit more about the dynamics between Anglo-Americans 
and other groups and how they played out in the Gulf Coast region region in the early years of the Republic. Yeah, yeah that, that's great. So um, most of the, oh, would you say the last part of that again? Um, how the dynamics um, between Anglo-Americans and other groups played out in the Gulf Coast re region in the early years of the Republic. The early years of the Republic, so mm -hmm. after the revolution. Yes, yeah, so, so it's a region that had, at the end of the revolution, it's got a lot of English-speaking loyalists in it. Uh, the, um, not New Orleans so much, but, but the Gulf Coast to the east of New Orleans. And I, as I said, Isabella Bruce, Isabella and James Bruce got thrown into exile. They had to go back to Britain. But most people got to stay. I mean, he was a member of His Majesty's Council, the local uh, king-appointed council in Pensacola. So he was an official. Most English-speaking West Floridians stayed in West Florida. And so the Spanish, you know, I, I talked about how the Spanish it, during and after the war needed to bring Native nations onto their side so they could hold this place. But they also thought the same thing about English-speaking colonists in West Florida. And so Galvez, who continues to be governor of this region and goes on to be viceroy of, of all of, of the Americas for Spain, North Mexico and North for Spain, he makes a concerted effort to promise to Anglo-Americans, who at this point are, are actually Spanish colonists, right? But they're English-speaking people who just were part of British colon colony right before that, um, that the Spanish empire is the best place for, um, for protecting their landholding and their ability to own slaves. And so the Spanish, at the same time that large numbers of people are getting their freedom, slave people are getting their freedom, Spanish also doesn't do away with slavery. In fact, it, it, uh, it has already, even before the war, had restarted the slave trade into Louisiana, which the French had ended. Um, and so there's this growing conflict between the promises that the Spanish are giving to some people, people who want uh, plantations, want land, want slavery, and um, enslaved people, former enslaved people and native nations who have that labor and land that those people want. Um, and so that base of, of English speakers are people who, they're pretty happy to be within the Spanish empire because they, they aren't forced to change their religion or anything like that. But they also are people whom the United States can appeal to as they come into this region. And so they're sort of the first um, plantation owners and other um, Protestant English speakers who, who live there. And then the flood of, so along the sort of cotton belt, it's, it's plantations, people move into this region. Um, white plantation owners move into this region, bringing large, large numbers of enslaved people in this, uh, this, this forced migration into these new regions for the United States. While just to the north of that, there are just settlers coming, white settlers coming in large, large numbers, just crowding into native land. And it happens, it happens really fast. Um, these places become, I mean, the, when you look at the numbers of, of every region, how its population flips, either from vastly majority, majority native to vastly majority white or um, you know, some white people and a lot of enslaved black people. Um, it happens really fast. I don't know if that quite got it to, um, but that's, a, that, that's, I guess that, that's one, at least one piece of the relations between Anglo-Americans in those 20 or 30 years after the revolution in these places. So 
another viewer asked, and uh, this is a great question, because this book is so amazingly well-researched, um, asked, asked you to speak a little bit about how you conducted the research for, for your book, um, various archives you went into, and you know, uh, how you went about it. Yeah, that, that's great. Well, good. Um, so wars generate lots of documents, right? But there are certain kind of documents. And so it was very easy to, you know, to find out what was going on in battles. And the Battle of Pensacola has like 10 different people who describe it from different angles, right? And, and then, you know, military historians have written about it. And um, some things were so much easier to write about than others. And so as you can see, I've the, most of the people who are at the center of this are the kind of people who generate documents. So um, Alexander McGillivray was one of the very, very few native leaders in this era who wrote letters in English and that survive, um, or that, that, wrote, that wrote letters at all and, and that survive. And so I knew from the beginning I wanted him to be one of my main characters because I precious writing from him and back and forth uh, from French, Spanish, and U.S. and British um, officials to him. Payamataha was such an important leader in the region that there are, I, I quickly chose him because I, he was just, he kept appearing in the documents, uh, including entire speeches that he'd given that were, you know, their translations, their transcriptions, they may not be exactly what he said, but they're still closer than what we have for the vast majority. Um, of, of Native people in the 18th century, um, as far as written documents go. Then, let's see who else. So I wanted to get some women in, and what I ended up doing is, is two of the eight people are women, but both of them are married to men who are main characters. And so the, it was sort of the only way I could get, I could feel that I could get enough about them to, um, to make them full characters was by knowing so much about them, their family through the writings of their husbands. Um, because um, Isabella Bruce didn't leave any writings. And the other woman that I write about is, is Margaret O'Brien, um, who married a man named Oliver Pollock and so was in New Orleans during the war. So she's Irish, um, but she's in New Orleans during the war. She didn't leave any letters except this one wonderful episode when um, Oliver Pollock was off um, not in New Orleans, she got in a, a sort of tiff with the governor. And so there's a back and forth of letters between her and the governor. And she's just, she's, oh, she's in a fight with the Spanish governor, which you were not supposed to do. Um, and, and so the, when I came across those letters, I was like, I have to go back and figure out who, uh, actually, that, I already had Oliver Pollock as a character. And I was like, okay, I can build enough around the character of his wife as well. Um, but one of the characters I wanted to have was one of these Choctaw women who are in Pensacola during the siege of Pensacola. I know they're there. And, you know, I, I'm an ethnic historian. I'm a writer. I could, I could make a, just a little bit of information about a woman if I had her name, or even if I had, say, her brother's name or her husband's name that she was there with. I think I could have made her into a full character, but I didn't even, I didn't have even a relationship that I could sort of tag onto an individual woman. I didn't have an individual woman at all. And so when I came across Petit Jean, um, that was just, that's an art, my favorite archival moment ever. I'd been reading about this spy that was going back and forth and was, was reporting back on Chickasaw movements and on uh, British movements to the Spanish, going back from ship to ship. And um, I've been kind of taking notes on him because I've been trying to think of what I know. I thought he was in Cape, or you know, French Mobilian, I guess. 
and I was taking one, and it was only like at sort of late in the run of these documents when somebody refers to him getting his freedom. Like, oh my goodness. So I had to sort of rethink this whole story. And then I found more about him freeing him, getting the freedom of his, um, his wife. And he appears in censuses later as free. Um, but, you know, that's, there's so little on individual um, people like him, even though I know they exist, that, that a lot of the story is dependent on, on what the archive preserves, which is um, you know, not even <laughs> by any means. We have another, um, we have several questions. Um, one, of our, one of our viewers is pointing out the irony of the, of the parallels between uh, how the British incorporated India uh, in their empire and, and, and wonders, did, did Americans realize they were doing the same thing that the British were doing uh, in their quest for empire? Um, there's, uh, and so if you can touch on that, but there's also, a, 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 I think, a very key question about how your work changes the traditional American narrative of the American Revolution uh, whether or not it alters the narrative of American except exceptionalism by suggesting that American expansion was like European. So I think the questions are somehow related, mm -hmm. um, but if you can comment more uh, generally, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. So, so first of all, know that the certain Americans have had a long tradition of, of um, persuading themselves that they are quite different from imperialists, um, even as they're doing much the same thing. Um, and it goes back very far. The English um, who came to Roanoke and Jamestown in the late 1500s and early 1600s just knew they were going to be different from the Spanish. And the Spanish are bad. They treat Indians bad. We are good. And one of the reasons that we are here is that we will treat Native people better. Um, and that's true at all, right? I mean, it is true and that it's in their heads, but it is not the way history works out in those places. Um, and so there, there's actually, there's a movement in American history right now to really to, to play with the idea of empire and, and to say, you know, the United States, you know, the, there's, there's traditionally the United States was sort of, the, the word empire doesn't come up till the Spanish-American War, the end of the 19th century, when the United States begins to aggressively move off of the continent and into other places. Um, there's a move among historians now to pull that much, or at least that debate much earlier and to say, well, you know, what, what is it if not an empire, a settler empire, if you go into a place that is ruled by other people, you not only push them off of that place and take their place, but then you say they never had a right to be there at all. Um, that, that, that sounds like an empire. And, um, so I think that it's been a very fruitful discussion in American, early American history to try to, you know, and, and I think becoming, probably becoming the consensus to, to say there, there's an imperial, an empire sort of push in the 19th century um, that maybe should be called that. You use a term in your book that, that I found just, just really interesting, advantageous in interdependence, um, mainly to talk about how uh, the Indian tribes sort of work together. Can you talk a little bit more about that, unpack that for us, and particularly in relationship to how it um, parallels and how it's different from democracy? 
Yeah. So, so I think one of the things I wanted to do in this book was 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 really you know question this this um, the notion of independence and if independence and so so I think I, I touched on this in this talk a little bit about sort of family independence and the um, independent you know, making decisions about this war based on on ideas about freedom and independence that are very personal that are about one's life and one's family, which I think are true for people we tra traditionally think of as revolutionaries as well as, as people in these other places. Um, so I think one of the things I've tried to do in this book is to find out, find, sort of figure things out in this other place and then take them back um, to, to Boston and Virginia and, and think about the revolution that way. Um, so advantageous interdependence is sort of a, a, a phrase I sort of came to for thinking about what, what do people want from their societies? And uh, some of this comes out of Christina Snyder's work, who was also a, a, a fellow at the National Humanities Center. And she talks about how independence is a strange thing to want, right, for your, your society. This is a place where there's already global trade. Um, and even before that, even before 1492, North America is a place where people's trade with each other, ally and war, um, being independent doesn't make any sense. What you want is alliances, relationships with other peoples, other places that are advantageous to you, maybe are better for you than they are for them, right? Um, but interdependencies, where maybe other people are a little more dependent on you than you are uh, on them. That is also true for the United States. You know, the United States declares its independence, it wins its independence, and that's the way we say it, and that's the way they said it. But immediately the United States needed to bring itself back into the community of nations, persuade France and Spain and Britain that it was a real country at all, right? And, and that it should have any say on the world stage. Um, and so I think that's the same kind of thing that the new United States wants to achieve. And that, that helps me get back to uh, one of the questioners mentioned American exceptionalism. And I do think that um, it, working on this book, had, I knew from the beginning, I think that it would, it would help me work against American exceptionalism to really show, you know, it's just in, in many different ways, but in, including the ways we were just talking about how um, there's an, an empire building aspect to the United States practically from the beginning, uh, this advantageous interdependence that the United States wants um, with other, with with other places, with other peoples. Um, and then it also highlights to me times that maybe are a little exceptional. I mean, the antebellum cotton South is, is kind of an exception in world history. It is, um, it is a different kind of slavery than has happened in most of world slavery, uh, most, most of world history. Um, and uh, I think it, you know, that's one of the reasons that that kind of plantation, it's not just in the United States, it's, it's in um, other places as well, but that period of, of planta extreme plantation slavery um, is, is different and worse, I think, if you can say it that way, um, than most of world slavery. Thank you so much, Professor Kathleen Duvall, and thanks to everyone who joined us tonight. You may also visit our website, nationalhumaniticescenter.org to learn more about the center's work and other opportunities to explore the humanities. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Stay safe and stay well. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Discovery and Inspiration. If you would like to view the original video recording of this or other humanities-related events, you can find them on the National Humanities Center's channel on YouTube. 
You can also find episodes of Discovery and Inspiration on SoundCloud or by visiting us at nationalhumanitiescenter.org.